Welcome to Business School. My name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture company. And I am Phineas Ellis, the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. This is a show where we explore the many aspects of consumer startup culture. Before we get started this week, I wanted to address some news. Couldn't resist, you know, the moment. We have a podcast together, Stephen and I, and so I also want to layer in updates on our lives as they happen. And we've talked about Burroughs' journey throughout this podcast in little moments, but finally the news has been announced that Burrow just raised a significant round of funding. What do you have to say for yourself? You know, I think fundraising is, it's obviously to get capital for the future, for future growth. But the way it works in reality is you kind of get rewarded for, for prior progress made. And so I'm, I'm really proud of our team how we've been able to grow so fast and adapt, especially during the pandemic. It, it's a testament to that, that people want to give us more money because they're seeing how fast we're growing, how efficient of a business we're building, how well our products are being received by our customers. And all of that is just, just leads to people wanting to invest money. And so I'm, I'm super proud of it and excited. There's also this feeling of, you know, once, once the round closes and the wires come through, you feel this like pressure. You're like, okay, now I got to do all the things I said I was going to do, <laughs> which I, I didn't have any doubt about, but you know what I mean? It just feels, you feel this pressure, but it's a good pressure because at least you have the resources to go after it as opposed to prior to raising the money. But Well, yeah. it's like, and you spend so much time putting together the pitch and the presentation about what you're going to build next. And then it's like, okay, well, they say, okay, great. And then you're just like, okay, now I have to go build it. <laughs> it's different. Phases. Yeah, because uh, everyone wants to know why you're going to spend all the money. And the, the truth is for us, we we don't necessarily need the money right this second. It's kind of like what we talked about with Song at Squire. Raise money when you can, not when you need it. And then you'll have a better time of getting it. And so we will be able to utilize the capital in the future. We just don't need it right this second. Uh, yeah, and I don't I don't want to confuse this little segment as necessarily celebratory or at least celebratory in the wrong ways. You know, I think on this show we've done a good job of speaking to what a good business means and how people should grow a business efficiently and whatnot, but it's definitely a milestone. Like we don't want to glor it's not a necessarily a big moment to celebrate. Oh, I raised a bunch of money. You know, you can have a shitty business and raise a lot of money, but it is a milestone, you know, and it's validation from folks and it allows you to continue to push the business to the next level. Fundraising is not inherently good or bad. It's just validation, I think, as well as a decision of how you want to grow your business. Totally. And and I'll tell you, like, all things considered, it's a de-stressor, mm. right? Like, we now can weather any storm in the future. We're not reliant on capital, but now we have a really nice buffer. So it feels that part feels really, really good. And yeah. you're right, it is validation, which is also feels good to have sure. uh, really smart people, you know, want to put money into your business and are excited about the return that they're going to get out of it. And I'm excited to create a return for those people too. So you're right, it's not, it's smart not to over celebrate just the milestone in and of itself of of, of fundraising, but um, more reflecting on what it means to get that money, yeah. I think is, is really is really important. Um, and it's it's exciting. Who can you share that participated in the round and how much was the round for? Yeah, it was a $25 million round. Um, it brings our total capital raised to date to 57 million. And Parkway Venture Capital led the round. 
they had participated in our Series B and, and then now led the C. NEA also participated. They had led the prior two rounds. And then a bunch of other people, Red and Blue Ventures, Winklevoss Capital, which are the Winklevoss twins. They're, Love that. Yeah. They actually have a really great portfolio. Yeah, I looked at it this morning, actually. It's significant. They've done a lot of lot of venture investing. Yeah, they have. And then we just, we've had a bunch of angels along the way. Well, congrats, man. Uh, it's another, it's just another chapter in the journey. So I'm, uh, I know how hard you've been working on it. Thank you. And I also remember the last fundraise and, and I, you know, it's just as part of the journey. So yeah, the series, the series B was a lot harder. Um, yeah. the series B was more us fundraising because we needed the money. Mm-hmm. Um, not because we had done quite the things that we said we were going to do yet. Sure. Um, and this was the opposite. Yeah. So yeah, it's exciting. Today, we have a really great guest. It's Ethan Song. He's the co-founder and former CEO of Frank and Oak. Ethan started the company back in 2012. They had really rocket ship-like growth early on and ambitions to disrupt the, the men's fashion industry. Um, and then over the next eight years, you know, Ethan learned, and Ethan and his team learned a lot about the trials and tribulations about what it means to grow a company and, and, and raising the right amount of capital or the wrong amount of capital, um, and then how they navigated all that. Um, it's a really interesting discussion about how expectations change over time. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, we, we analyze in the, in the news startups that don't make it. And, and Frank and Oak is a really great example of a company that may have made some mistakes along the way, but ultimately very successful business. And they achieved a really nice exit last year um, in selling to a a private equity firm. Um, And the company is still growing and and thriving today. So anyways, really, really, really interesting stuff. Ethan, thanks for coming on the show. Okay. So you started Frank and Oak in 2012. That's right. Yeah. Tell us about that. You had a co-founder, you started in Montreal. What was the opportunity you saw and, and how'd you go after it? Yeah, you know, it's it's really crazy because like, you know, 2012 is about eight years ago, which is like a lifetime, right? In the consumer and tech space. And uh, what we saw was, you know, we saw the growth basically on the, on the women's side, um, you know, looking at a lot of the products that were on the market at that time. You know, even some of the private sales sites that were growing at the time, like the Guild Group, were very focused on the on the women's side of the business. And we just realized that, you know, we're a generation of guys that, you know, does care more about not just style, but just having quality products around our lives. You know, things are well designed. And then there wasn't really a product that was there built for men. And so we we decided to basically build Frank and Oak with two very specific intent. One, create like great basics and two, build an experience that helps guys dress better. And that was kind of like the initial intent. I would say that we, we never expected to have like the amazing growth that we had immediately off the bat. You know, the company started in February 2012 and within like six or seven months, we we're doing more than a million dollars, you know, in recurring revenue uh, per month. I've been involved in other businesses since then. And like that kind of explosion is not something you can plan for. You know, it's like, it's just the perfect timing in the market, the the perfect kind of support from very specific communities. And I think at that time we tapped into like two major trends, I would say, you know, even outside of menswear. I think the men's thing was an important part, but one, um, just a general idea of like subscription uh, was really kind of taking off, you know, with Birchbox and there was a bunch of other companies in that space at that time. But the second part, which was more powerful, and I realized that later on, was really around the fact there was this whole like new generation millennial guys that you know didn't really want to shop at like 
you know, the Gap or more traditional, like, you know, mall-based retailers anymore. And, and they kind of embrace the brand. And so this whole, like, you know, hipsters mixed with third wave coffee mixed with Williamsburg, you know, the, the Frank and Oak brand kind of fell right into that. And that was a big part of our success. So, yeah, so, you know, we, we got it started. You know, the interesting part is that because of that tremendous growth, we had to hire very quickly, obviously, to deliver on the demand. We went from like a small team of like five individuals to, you know, having over 70 uh, employees like within like 12 months. So that was definitely like really challenging. You know, uh, it was very exciting. Um, so definitely not going to complain about that. But it was also a very challenging time. You know, obviously, because of the growth, we were also always running out of stock, always running out of cash, always running out of time. You know, those, those are the resources that, that we're always getting depleted. So, you know, we went out, raised some capital as well, and then we were off. How did you and your co-founder split up responsibilities early? Yeah, actually, the, the one thing I do want to say before I jump into that is that we had started another company before Frank and Oak, which we tried to scale over two years that did not scale. And so like one of the interesting part about Frank and Oak, it was actually a pivot from a custom menswear shirt company. Mm. And so all the Frank and Oak exploded overnight like we had been working on a men's e-commerce product for two years before that. So therefore, you know, there's, there's definitely no overnight success. And that's why there's always chance that happens in any business. But like, you know, that was kind of like two years in the making, you know, the opportunity that we saw. So th that's important to, to mention. I feel like that's more common than people think. Like a lot of companies have backstories like that where they were working on something else and then there was some change or pivot in the business and then it took off i think it's always the case and even even if it's not a pivot within a company it could be from a past experience that you've lived through like as an individual i think and the other thing i always figure out is like ideation is way overrated i think you you really see the opportunity by doing because like you have to be in the game right to be able to to like kind of you know meet the opportunity and so to me it's just like hey pick Pick a nice way, pick a nice space and just get started and you're going to figure something out. It may be this year, maybe in 10 years, but you'll figure something out. And that's what happened to us uh, in that case. But yeah, with, with my co-founder, you know, is, you know, we've been friends since high school. You know, like a lot of people, it started from friendship first. We've always had shared values around what we wanted to do with our lives. And I think in our case it was just to build companies and, and create value for the world. And so the way that we split relationship was I was always more the products and marketing guy, so more consumer facing, thinking about how do we better connect? How do we deliver value to our customers? Whereas like my partner really focused on, you know, the, the more foundational slash like operations part of the business, which is like, how do we deliver and make sure that we're able to actually deliver on our promises. And so that's kind of how we split responsibility. And, and that's how it's been like over the eight years that we were running Frank and Oak. Do you think that if your friend had the different skill set? And you, but you still wanted to start companies and add value to the world, but your co-founder and friend at the time had similar had a similar skill set to you, and you decided to start Frank and Oak. Would you guys have had? Would you have had the same success? I think so. Yeah, to tell the truth, because I, I I'm I'm a big believer in relationships, and I think you, the bond that you make, and the you know the hustle and the determination and the shared kind of sense of trust and loyalty. I think that. That to me is worth more than even the skill sets. Um, you know, for sure, don't get me wrong. Like as the company grows, we've had multiple discussions where both of us needed to find new roles for ourselves. And you know, I w I've always been the CEO, but even you know, being the CEO doesn't really mean anything, right? Like like every CEO is different, and every CEO has unique, specific knowledge that they apply differently. So we also had to have those discussions many times, and so that's why I, I realized that you you kind of become 
not just who you want to be, but you adapt to the situation. So that's why I think that like it would it would probably it would have still yielded the same results. The only thing I would say that's different is that at an early stage, where you have to do everything, your core skills matter a lot. As you get bigger, they matter a little bit less. Your judgment matters probably more than your core skills. And what I mean by core skills is like, hey, if you're good at customer acquisition, well, when you're small, you have to do customer acquisition. As you get bigger, you know, it's not about that as more as much as like you know finding the right people and developing the right talent. Are any of those conversations difficult? The reallocation of of roles and responsibilities, title, deciding that you're the CEO. Were there any of those moments particularly challenging? I, I think I think it's it's always challenging, and and like to that, like I would say, you know, I, I credit like my partner Isham uh, a lot for his flexibility. You know, and and like especially when. We first started Frank and Oak, like, you know, I was obviously younger at that time. You know, I did, you know, end up making decisions based on ego or based on what I thought was like, you know, me changing the world. And, and you know, that was completely foolish uh, for me. And in and, and those moments, you know, he kind of let me have it, you know, to a certain point. <laughs> uh, and he showed and grace. Think, yeah, yeah, exactly. He showed grace and understanding. And, and I think he like I think what, what ended up working out in those hard discussions was that like we were always focused on the bigger picture. And, and so both of us have definitely, you know, like compromise, not the right word, but, you know, figure a way to make things work just like in any relationship. But I, I, I always say that he definitely did more than I did. So that's why I, I'm grateful for that. And I, I've told him many times later on, once I realized uh, that that was the case. And, and now I'm obviously trying to be more conscious of that. At the same time, because, you know, we were running a branded business, you know, it, it, there is an aspect that was required of like greater vision and, and pushing through hard. Uh, and I think that did contribute to our success, but that said on a personal note for sure. And we're still very good friends today. Like a lot of people ask me cause we don't, obviously we're, we're both not at Frank and Oak anymore. And, and uh, he, he's currently actually uh, in Germany and, and we're, but we're still very close friends. That's really important to me because ultimately I think relationships are essential. Can you talk about some of those, what some of those roles were. I think this is something that a lot of people don't realize is that it, we talked about this a little bit with the, on the Slava episode, Phineas, mm -hmm. if you remember, yep. it was like when you're building a business, you know, some things are going from zero to one in the beginning and then they go from one to two and two to three and you're, you're scaling them and they're maturing, but they're for the first several years of a company's life, there are so many new aspects that need to be developed from zero to one. And oftentimes that fall, oftentimes that falls on the co-founders to tackle those things because it's hard to like hire for them. Yeah. What were some of those roles that that you and your co-founder? I mean, I know you said you were CEO, but you had to like focus on different things. And your co-founder, it sounds like, took on different roles. What What were some of those roles? Well, I mean, I think I think let's say as an example, like my co-founder at some point was COO and CFO. You know, for for a while, although he doesn't come from like a finance or accounting background, he also comes from an engineering background, but you know, it, it, those are kind of the funny things where it was just like we had a discussion. It was like, you know what, like you're way more organized than me, so you should be CFO. And so, so that's kind of how it was decided. But then obviously, eventually, you know, the, it comes with great accountability and, you know, a lot of like more complex issues. So you know, he took on that role. You know, I think he, he led also HR for a long time because, you know, like as I mentioned, we had to recruit and hire very quickly and develop all the processes around that. So that, that speed at which we had to scale, especially in the first three years of Frank and Oak was like a, a big part where we just had to jump into new roles, you know, but even in my case, there's this sort of like, I would say like imposter syndrome that I had, which I know a lot of CEOs have, but like in my case, I had not been involved in fashion before and there I was leading a fashion brand that was making fashionable products. And so 
what do I know about what's the right product to make? What do I know about, you know, even hiring the right designers? And I had to kind of learn that on the fly and just kind of like set your bases and, and make the right assumptions. I am fascinated by as those roles change, does the conversation around equity in the business change? And how do founders, you can speak to it generally too, and Stephen, you can obviously speak to this too, is like when, you're a co when you have a co-founder from day one, yeah. is the default 50-50? And if it's not, how difficult is that conversation? And as your roles change over the years, you know, I don't think people realize that equity also shifts, but in more complex ways. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I would say in our case, it was it was fairly simple. We we started 50-50. And, and the reason we did that is because, you know, just like a lot of entrepreneurs, we started with basically nothing. Like we neither of us had experience, neither of us had a track record, neither of us had any money to put into the company. And I think, you know, as you... In other setups, especially when you have more than two co-founders, I think that's when a dis discussion comes along. You know, I, I do think that people's experience, what they bring to the table, plus their money, should be valued because it is valuable. But it's a very difficult discussion. So uh, in our case, it was fairly simple, and 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 that's how we split things. But you know, it w it wasn't a hard discussion because in the beginning we're splitting fifty-fifty of nothing, right? That's right. the thing, and and like. But I agree with you that as as companies start gaining value, yeah, you know the the discussions may change. And, and in our case, like you know, from a from a founder shares perspective, we always kept it the same, and we never revised that. Mm. Yeah, we also did fifty fifty to start. And similarly, the shares you get as a founder don't change. But Phineas, to your question roles over time like as you you know as people settle into their roles like different roles get paid different amounts right right ceos tend to get paid more than any other role in a company but that's like cash you know compensation there can be other options later on that get issued like performance-based options that the board sets and that's kind of the point of having a board too is to have those executive compensation discussions and to lead those as opposed to leaving it up to founders to continuously come up with what that is. And what we found worked is just having a completely fact-based approach to like looking at market comps and, and, and just pegging things to that. So that takes kind of like any ego and emotion out of the equation. It's just like, what are the, what's the role and what's market rate? But this is where a vesting schedule comes into play, obviously, right? And how, you know, if a founder wants to leave or if a founder loses interest or if a founder wants to scale back and work, you know, 50% of, of their right. time on the business. I would imagine neither one of you had a clear, well thought out partnership agreement that included a vesting schedule on day one. At what point was that there? Oh, maybe you did, Stephen, because you had some really good people around you. I, I don't know. I, I know personally other other friends of mine who started companies uh didn't think about that till a little bit further down the line. If you incorporate, most lawyers will will tell you like, this is the standard vesting schedule. So I don't. Then you can comment on what you guys did. We ours was from day one on a four year vesting schedule, which is pretty standard. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty standard in the in the venture space. You know, it's not like that in traditional business, right? So that, that's the part where with startups, uh, it's like that. In our case, actually, I don't think we had that from day one, but because we raised money very quickly. It was something that came as a discussion the moment that we had like institutional investors involved and and like to the to the other discussion about like you know what should a ceo get versus a cto or a ceo i think like those those discussions in our case came much later once you know we had raised like our series d because there's this 
there's this moment in your you know uh life cycle as a leader where you go from founder to executive and i think once you become an executive then you know obviously you're looking at more pay but you're also looking at a package that's based on the role that you have and at that point in time you know the board makes the assessment of like hey how much would it cost me for this role whether it's this founder or another person and i think that's that's a very fair assessment because as a founder you already got paid from your shares that are founder shares and now it's a different deal and i think uh i think that's that's a fair uh, assessment from from the board and i agree with you that that's in the case where you have a compensation committee and you have all that stuff now don't get me wrong there's that's not the only way to do it you know if you don't want to take in capital if you want to build your business slowly like a more traditional family business then you don't have to deal with these and you can pay yourself whatever you want but you don't get the capital, right? So you have to grow things slowly. And then I think that's a, I think a lot of people, especially in the DDC space are coming to a realization that actually may be a better plan. And, you know, I, I think there's some fair points to that. My advice to any founders early on is like, you don't even really need titles. In fact, we started with titles and then we stripped them out and Kabir and I were both co-founder until we kind of settled into our roles. And it took, it took like two years to settle into like what the roles were. And that just like took all and we paid ourselves the same and it wasn't it was like nothing basically because you can have you can have a thousand conversations until you're blue in the face about what roles are and whatever but like you don't know what your role is really supposed to be until you've been working on the company for a couple of years i think at least a year and i see a lot of founders early on get caught up with like well i'm you know x title or whatever and it's like you're not anything your company's worth nothing you <laughs> you guys have like a pitch deck um like just avoid that conversation and just focus on building and it's like getting all hands on deck and eventually it should be pretty clear who's doing what. Yeah. I mean, one thing I found, you know, even having been in a startup space now for more than 10 years, I think the like status is something that the, the one, the thing I, I don't like about the startup ecosystem, which is like, Oh, you raised from so-and-so so-and-so is an investor in your company or like your title is this, like, you know, like there's value behind all that stuff, but like the, just the name dropping part of it is not, is not valuable and, and it's not important. That's not what makes your business great or not. And I think there, there tends to be a lot of that and uh, you quickly realize that that's not meaningful to the success of your business. Completely agree. You mentioned that you're no longer at the company and could you speak to that transition, your transition out, you and your co-founder are no longer at the company. What led to that decision? Uh, can you just speak to the environment around that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think for us, like, you know, we, we took on, you know, new private equity investors, uh, you know, in 2017. And, and I think that over time, you know, we just realized that we had very different visions for where the business should be. And, and, and like, I think it's something that happens very often, you know, as you go into that direction. And I think the, the retail aspect became more and more important. And that was also not a part that it was really exciting for me personally. So there's a few different factors that kind of led to, to that decision. And I think it was it was the right decision, actually. So that's why I have, you know, no, no bad blood about it. I think that it came a time after eight years uh, where I felt that I led the company as far as I could. And the next step were not steps that I felt I was well equipped or that even I had the desire uh, to pursue. And, and it's, it's like um, it was a hard realization, you know, to be fully honest, in the sense that like, I like my heroes are obviously like the like like a lot of people, you know, the, the Elon Musk's of this world where it's like you take it as far as you can. Right. And you die or you live uh, with the company. Um, but at the same time, life is short. And, and I think you 
you have the opportunity to do many things in life. And, you know, if it doesn't seem right anymore, it's perfectly fine to step down and make a change as well. And, and that's kind of what happened in, in my case. My co-founder actually stayed on for longer uh, after I was, I was gone. And uh, the company was sold also in the last year. So uh, definitely a lot of changes have happened. Now, I, I think that uh, it's a really exciting time regardless. I think it's, it's an exciting time because now there's new owners at Frank and Oak and, and a new CEO. And I think I'm excited to see where they bring the company. Uh, but obviously, I'm also excited about the... I mean, it's, it's maybe it's a weird thing to say, but I think that we're, we're going into a new world. And although, you know, there's been a lot of like, you know, pain and distress in the last like, you know, 12 months, I think there's, there's going to be a new world that's being created. And, and I think an opportunity for young people, especially to, to redefine things uh, based on their values. I think the, it's, it's never black and white, like that, that's the main thing. Uh, but at the same time, I also felt that, you know, as it relates, and this is more like a broader kind of discussion. Um, I, I realized over my, my stay at, you know, Frank and Oak was also that direct to consumer was going to evolve as well like like even outside of the franken oak business and what i thought that a ddc business could be i'm not sure that it can be anymore mm. and so that obviously opened a lot of questions as to like what i think should be the you know not just the future of my business but future of other businesses like uh franken oak and and all those things were kind of part of that conversation we got. I gotta dig deeper. What What do you think a D to C business? What did you think it could be, and how did your mind change around that? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think I think the first thing is like every D to C business is different because it plays in different spaces with different dynamics, right? And and like there's buyers dynamics, consumer dynamics. There's even like products and margins dynamics. So I think it's hard to make a conclusion across the entire space. But what I can definitely say is that. You know, it's, it's funny because now we're kind of like at the end of it in the, in the beginning of a new economic cycle. And we started our, our company after the last financial crisis. I, I graduated from, you know, college during the financial crisis, like a lot of people of my peers now. And we've seen the entire cycle. And around 2011, 2012, there was basically the discussion that, you know, the new DTC brands, the new millennial focused DTC brands were going to come out and completely dominate the old brands. And that has not happened. Like, despite the fact that, you know, the, the more traditional brands, and I, let's say we talk about fashion, but it's the same thing in beauty or even like in, in furniture, is that the, the older brands are still the ones with the, the majority of the sales. And that, le that level of disruption has not happened. And I think that's the reason why, unfortunately, like DDC is not the same thing as a pure technology SaaS play. Like the speed of disruption is just not as quick. I think that the disruption is still happening, but it's going to happen over a 20, 30 year period, not over a five or 10 year period in the same way that we're seeing it in like things like, you know, from Airbnb to Uber, which are more like, you know, online platforms. And so that creates an issue, especially if you're raising capital based on a five or 10 year, you know, a fund structure that you need to return the capital. So all these things made it the fact that I think quite a few brands, including us, ended up spending too much money too fast, trying to like achieve scale when the real plan was more of a 20, 30 year plan, you know, and be more patient. And those are a business that you're going to see succeed in the next 20, 30 years in a D2C space. And that's what the private equity team that you brought on wanted to do. Well, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for what others, um, you know, and I don't even know what they're saying today. So that's why I'm not, I'm not going to make that conclusion. But I think I think the, the challenge we had at Frank and Oak was that the business was not geared up for that from the start. 
And if I had, if I would have done it differently, that's what I would have done. Build a 30 year plan, do it slowly. Don't raise as much, as much capital. Now that said, I wouldn't have done that because that's way too long for me. And I don't have the patience to do that. So yeah. I, I think that like, I think that's the way to do it, but I know, I don't know if like, that's something I would have selected to do. Yeah. And all things considered, you scaled a business very quickly over an eight year period. And then you had an exit event, right? The company was sold. Yeah. Yeah. And you've learned a ton and you've built a, an enduring brand. I mean, I, w- I would call it success, whether or not, it, you know, you'd say how you think businesses should be built online today and for the future and the, and the timeline, whatever you you still figured it out. It's not like you would do things differently because your company failed. You do things differently. You, you think about how to build a business differently, given all the dynamics that you've learned about. But I mean, you still succeeded. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I consider it a huge success and, and not just for me, but for for everyone that was involved in the company. I think the you know, the, the company is, you know, like you said, like we, we've taken through all the cycles. It's a very well-known brand. You know, there's actually new owners. The company is going to continue existing past, you know, my, my presence as CEO, which is actually, I think, a sign of success, to tell the truth, that the company can go on without, without you being involved. So I, I'm, I'm like, you know, when I think back, you know, I, I actually think if you, if you only look at certain moments, then, you know, you may feel some, you know, more negative emotions about it. But if you take a step back at everything that we accomplish, I, I feel very happy and, and like I feel very good about everything that we've done. You know, the it's it's impossible to go back and say I would have done things differently because in the moment you make the, you made the best decision based on the data and the knowledge that you've had and things change and everyone changes. But that said, I think that, you know, the the learnings I've taken, I'm definitely gonna apply it to my to my next ventures and something that I'm excited to take on. So there's no idea you have cooking right now. Oh, I got lots of ideas cooking. I'm sure you have lots of ideas <laughs> cooking. And um, but but that said, you know what's interesting is that like I just love the entrepreneurial lifestyle. You know, yeah. and I want to go back to that where it's like I just love the journey of like starting and building. That's why like you know going back to like how do you define success? Like it's not defined on the size of your exit or how much money you have. Like. Those things matter, but they're not ultimately the main reason why you're doing it. And so like what's actually really interesting in this sort of like, you know, almost like right now my main focus is advising and investing is I've actually refound uh, the passion for entrepreneurship and building and, and yeah. being foolish and believing things that are, are unbelievable. And so I, I kind of rekindled with like why I wanted to be an entrepreneur in the first place, which was just like to build cool shit and like bring it to people and, and like have fun doing it. And that's something that I had lost a little bit, you know, after being CEO for like more than eight years where I was just focused on management and hitting my numbers. And, and like, you know, I, I actually found the joy again in like creation. And, and I think ultimately that's, that's what entrepreneurship is about. And so, yeah, so I mean, I have a bunch of different ideas um, and I'm, I'm, you know, working on some stuff too, but, you know, I think it's just too early to, to share any of those specific. I'll have to come back on the show Uh, to present one of these but i think the journey really matters and i think like i don't i never aspired to be a serial entrepreneur but i'm i'm probably i am a serial entrepreneur but not because i want to be just because like it's just too fun to not do it yeah yeah it's who you are well we're excited to have you back on the show when you come up with your next idea yeah thank you for coming on this was this was great and uh this is a topic we should dig into more sounds good guys appreciate it class dismissed
Thank you for listening. If you want to support this podcast, the best thing you can do is hit the subscribe button. Take a minute, hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified whenever we come out with a new episode.